today we're going to go over the passages which talk about Jesus cursing the fig tree. What we will find is that Jesus is one greater than Jehu, that God is sovereign over salvation and judgment, and that the overnight withering of the fig tree is a sign of the end of the Levitical priesthood. Okay, let's talk about one greater than Jehu. If you remember last time, we went over the Luke 13 parable of the fig tree. And I think what we see here is that parable enacted in real life. A certain man is looking for fruit on his barren fig tree. And in Mark 11, in the parallel passage of Matthew 21, Jesus himself is a certain man seeking fruit on a fig tree, and he doesn't find any, similar to the parable. So he curses it. Like in the parable, it's cut down. The barren fig tree he encounters Encounters here is a figure of Old Covenant Israel as it regularly is. I think everything we've already gone over has established this, but we have even more in these passages to further supplement this and then illuminate other facets of this reading. I should note that I'm somewhat tentative with some of the things that I'm going to suggest here. You know, I don't have a hundred percent handle on everything because just some of these things start getting pretty difficult, but I think I'm swinging in the right direction. I think there is something there. So I want to put them out for others to refine them or refute them. One thing to notice in both Mark 11 and Matthew 21 is the general shape of the story. In both accounts, Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly, looks for fruit, finds none, curses the fig tree, and cleanses the temple. The order is somewhat shuffled in each account, but these three actions are all relevant. They are all pointing to the wickedness of Israel in not bearing fruit and their subsequent judgment. Jesus arrives at the fig tree, finds no fruit, curses it. Jesus arrives at the temple, finds no fruit, clears it. But the larger shape is similar to Jehu's story in 2 Kings 9-10. through Jesus's entry, cursing, and cleansing clearing is a recapitulation of Jehu. Jehu is a messianic type. Jehu was also recognized as king of Israel. He also had a triumphal entry, and he also cleared the house of God, which was an Israel ruled by Ahab and Jezebel. Jesus is doing the same thing here when he clears the temple, and then he does it in an even greater and more final way 40 years later when he destroys the temple. I think the shape of the story teaches us that one great than Jehu is here. When Jehu is anointed king, we read this in 2 Kings 9, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king, kind of this triumphal entry, which when we read about Jesus, we read many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So both kings have this triumphal entry. And just as Jehu the king came in judgment on the house of Israel, so too Jesus the king comes in judgment on the house of Israel. His cursing the fig tree was a preliminary judgment to his clearing the temple courts. And his clearing the temple courts was a preliminary to his destroying the temple completely. An even more Jehu-like judgment on Jerusalem through Vespasian and 
Titus and their armies, their Roman armies. If you read the story of Jehu, you have this strong sense of his zealousness. He is intense in bringing judgment on the house of Ahab. We are told several times that he is known for riding furiously, driving furiously. Similarly, Jesus' clearing of the temple was one of his most furious moments of earthly ministry. So much so that after he clears the temple courts, his disciples remember Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house has eaten me up, which is interesting in its Jehu connections, but also for its eating connotations, given the context of the fig tree. Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey as the lowly servant king to offer himself as the sacrifice for his elect, but later in Revelation 6 and 19, he comes again on a white war horse with his heavenly army to wage war against the nations, including Israel. He comes as an avenger of blood and a vindicator of the righteous. One of his first acts of judgment as the ascended king in heaven was to destroy the nation of Israel, much like Jehu's first act of judgment as king. I believe Jesus alludes to this in his parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. The king prepares a wedding for his son, sends his servants out to invite people to it. Those invited weren't willing to come. He sends out more servants to invite more people. Jesus then says this, but they made light of it and they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And then he goes on to invite new people to the wedding feast. So what's going on here? I think the most intelligible reading is that the king is the father, the son is Jesus, the servants are the prophets, the ones willing to come and who murdered the servants are Jews, the king sending an army to destroy those who refused to come was the judgment that happened from AD 66 to AD 70, the new invitees are the Gentiles. And the wedding feast is the gathering of the new covenant church. Now, there's probably something of a double fulfillment thing going on here, where this could be in reference to the final judgment and the final wedding feast. But I am convinced that the primary and first application of this parable is to the unbelieving Jews of the first century who didn't want to come to the wedding feast, and that the wedding feast is the new covenant church. It's almost like communion together is kind of like anticipating the final wedding feast, but it's also a wedding feast in itself where we are united to Christ in a certain kind of mystical manner. So when John sees Jesus on a white horse along with an army of angels behind him in Revelation, ready to make war on the nations, I think we can understand this as his war against Old Covenant Israel, and then secondly as his advancement of his kingdom uh, throughout the rest of the world following his judgment on Israel. And that is supplemented by other things in these passages, which we will get to in another episode. But ultimately, I think we can view this as one greater than Jehu is executing his vengeance on the nations. But that judgment begins at the house of the Lord, at the house of Israel. And so that furious Jehu-like judgment is executed ultimately in the first century on Jerusalem. Something that further solidifies this reading are the events of history themselves. We have two non-Christian historians tell us that there was an army seen in the sky over Jerusalem right before Jerusalem was annihilated a few 
years before things really started to go south from AD 66 to AD 70. Josephus, a Jew, not a Christian, so he doesn't have a reason to lie about this. In fact, if he knew what was going on, he would have a reason to suppress this kind of thing. But he tells us this in the Wars of the Jews, and you can see the citation in the transcript. On the 1 and 20th day of the month, Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For, before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their army were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. <laughs> And then Tacitus, a pagan Roman, he records this in his histories in the in over Jerusalem. In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glittering army. So those are pretty incredible statements. And there's there's so much wild stuff in the period from 66 to 70 AD recorded by Josephus and other non-Christian sources that are basically testimonies to the fulfillment of Jesus's Olivet Discourse and the Apocalypse of John, which Revelation is just a protracted version of the Olivet Discourse. But here, I think the inhabitants of Jerusalem saw their king in the sky, followed by his heavenly army, ready to make war on them through the instrumentality of their own chaotic and violent civil war, and finally the Roman army. The inhabitants of Jerusalem saw what John saw in Revelation 6 and 19, these heavenly armies coming. The cursing of the fig tree means the judgment of Israel, and we see that these are that there are fractals of Jehu along with the wedding feast parable and the visions from the apocalypse of John that all point to Christ returning as a warrior Jehu king to destroy his enemies, the unfruitful barren, unfaithful adulterers and murderers of that generation. Okay, not the season for figs. Let's zoom in on the cursing of the barren fig tree. We read this in Mark 11. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, which means house of misery, which is interesting, but we won't go there. He was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, the strange thing to me when I read this is that Jesus curses the fig tree for not having figs when it wasn't the season for figs. It's kind of this counterintuitive thing. Why would he do this? So how do we make sense of this? If we understand the fig tree to be Israel, and we understand what Paul teaches about God's sovereignty over election and judgment regarding Israel in Romans 9 through 11, then I think it becomes clear. It's another version of the creation saying to the creator, why have you made me thus? Why does Jesus find fault in the fig tree of Israel? For who can resist the season of year it is? Israel's inability to see and accept their Messiah is sovereignly orchestrated by God for his purposes. And yet they still are responsible for their rejection of him and receive the punishments for their unbelief. The Bible testifies all over the place to God's sovereignty and salvation, but also man's responsibility for sin. And I think that is what is happening here. In John 12, John says the Jews couldn't believe because God caused them not to believe in verses 39 through 40. Therefore, 
they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So in other words, and I mean, you find stuff like this all over the place, right? So I'm, I'm just using a few examples here. But in other words, the Jews couldn't believe because it wasn't the season for Jews to believe. The fig tree didn't produce figs because it wasn't the season for figs. Yet Jesus holds them accountable. He holds the fig tree accountable. But one of you will say to me, why does he find fault since no one can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to reply against God? But Paul doesn't leave the Jews without hope. He tells us in Romans 11 that the season for Jews to believe will happen in time. And when it happens, it will be because God will circumcise their hearts. God will give them eyes to see and God will then find fruit on the fig tree. And it will be an even greater blessing to the nations than their falling away was. An overnight withering. After cursing the fig tree, clearing the temple, and on the next day we read this. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. The fig tree withering overnight is a contrasted event from the rod of Aaron blossoming overnight. Both are miraculous events signifying the miraculous fruitfulness or fruitlessness of Israelite ministry. This was brought to my attention by Matthew Henry, and you can go read his way of stating it, which is more eloquent than what I'm going to say here, but the fig tree of Israel withers overnight. The rod of Aaron bloomed overnight. The blossoming rod of Aaron is a tree, so to speak, and it indicated God's choosing of the house of Levi for the priesthood and the fruitfulness of their ministry. That God's providence and power was with Israel and their priesthood was signified in the overnight sprouting of Aaron's rod, but the overnight withering of the fig tree represented God's withdrawal of favor that the Levitical priesthood is no longer going to be a fruitful ministry. Remember what Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot bear any fruit, you cannot do anything. And Israel has, at this point, withdrawn from God. So God is withdrawing from Israel. Therefore, it withers away. It can't do anything apart from God. And what this indicates to us, the termination of the Levitical priesthood, we know from the rest of scripture that there's a new priesthood which supplants it and that is the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ, which we are all in when we are baptized into him. It's a better priesthood, and it is the only priesthood now that can bear fruit. So, the cursing of the fig tree indicated the end of the Old Covenant era. All of these things are tied up with the coming judgment on the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, the end of the Old Covenant priesthood, the beginning of the New Covenant priesthood, the sovereign casting away of unbelieving Israel, it wasn't their season for believing, and the one greater than Jehu, the warrior king, coming in judgment on the barren fig tree of Jerusalem. So next episode, we will explore Jesus' teachings in response to Peter's observation of uh, the withered fig tree.